Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. This is episode 19, but it's really the first of two parts. We recently interviewed Eflagar Smith, and Cole and I realized after our interview that we really wanted to reflect on the dialogue. So in this episode, you're going to hear the first part of our discussion with Lagarde, and then Cole and I will discuss that content, and then in episode 20, and then in episode 20, we'll air the second half of our conversation with Lagarde, and then Cole and I will discuss that content then. So enjoy episode 19, the first half of our interview with Lagarde Smith. Hey, buddy. Good morning, Scott. Uh, We're here with B. Cole Bennett, J. Scott Self, and today with F. Lagarde Smith. We all three start with (laughs) use our middle names. That's true. Um, Years ago, years ago, I don't know if you can still find it out there on the web, but there was a website called Lean à Trois, French meaning three lines. And they had scores of uh, three pairings of different things. Um, very fascinating. And they had me on there, F. Lagarde Smith with F. Lee Bailey and F. Fitzgerald. <laughs> and so you know, you're supposed to figure out, well, what do they have in common? Well, it's obviously that they start off with the initial F. No, no, no. They didn't stop there. They said, um, uh F. Scott Fitzgerald was an author, F. Lee Bailey was an attorney, and F. Lagarde Smith was an author. And oh, somebody okay. Was, was thinking overtime. I have no idea who put that <laughs> list together. But very fascinating. That is a brilliant idea, though. It is. Uh, so, let, Lagarde, let me introduce you. I, I wrote down a little thing I'll read here. Uh, Lagarde uh, at the Pepperdine University School of Law for 27 years, as well as at Lipscomb University and Faulkner University. He's written some 30 books, including Radical Restoration, The Cultural Church, Troubling Questions for Calvinists, and most recently, Darwin's Secret Sex Problem, Exposing Evolution's Fatal Flaw. I guess uh, your publishers wanted you to have at least one book that that had sex in the title. (laughs) Well, the publisher was me. <laughs> He's most I widely known. Sex sells, but it doesn't. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't He's work. most widely known for compiling the Daily Bible, the NIV, in chronological order. But most importantly, he's a model disciple, a loving husband to Ruth, and a friend to me. I'm so glad you joined us. Great to be with you. Uh, by um, the way, the Daily Bible is is uh, no longer just in the NIV; it's also in the NLT. So. There you really? Go. Good to know. Oh. Yep. Let's start this podcast really quick, Scott, by rehearsing our three tenets for how we do things. The first one being sacred cows make great barbecue. That's right. We will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. That's right. Also, be sure and let your flag fly proudly. Yeah, argue vigorously for your point of view and as long as you believe it. And the most important one? Bros before politicos. That's right. We're brothers first, and everything else is just details. Excellent. Cole and I have a problem on this podcast. Um, we had a lot of problems, but one of the <laughs> fundamental uh, things that, that, that we've been wrestling with are the ways in which we disagree with one another, but we're still brothers. I think that was a big feature of our episode last time, mm-hmm. um, and it has come up from time to time um, as a as a primary feature, there's one place where Cole and I tend to agree significantly, and I think it needs to be investigated. We've not yet found uh, an interlocutor who's capable of investigating this or, or or testing our point of view sufficiently, and this is the point of view that I think needs to be tested. Um, even as a uh, a, a very conservative person, Cole believes that there should be a strict separation between church and state, not only that the state should not influence the church, but that the church has no business uh, issuing law to the state. Uh, and as a liberal, I have the same point of view that uh, not only should the state not be influencing the church, uh, but that the church uh, is not good at 
um, and has historically been bad at issuing law and that we need to persuade in the public square. Both of us believe that the church's role is to act in persuasive ways rather than enforcement ways, rather than trying to create some codification of morality. Uh, and I know that gets turned into legislating morality. I, I want to step away from just legislation, but more to the idea of enforcing codes. Uh, and um, But that we have every right and, in fact, the responsibility uh, to persuade in the public square. Um, so talk to us a little bit about where we might be wrong. Well, I think you need to start off with... Um, thinking about the separation between church and state, because it's really a false premise as has been discussed over the past many decades. If you go back to the Establishment Clause, the intent of the Establishment Clause was to reassure the colonies that their then currently established churches, whether they be congregational or Roman Catholic or uh, Anglican, uh, whatever it might have been at the time, they had established churches, most of the original colonies. So what they all feared was that if they unified into the United States of America, that one of the established churches would become the national established church. And they were not ready to sign up to that, obviously, because they wanted the, they were fiercely independent. So the Establishment Clause was, was brought in to calm their fears and to say, um, Congress, Congress, the national federal government, Congress shall establish no church. But there was never an intent to say to the colonies that you cannot have your own established churches. Uh, if that had been the perceived intent, probably none of the colonies would have signed up. Uh, right. And even if they didn't have an established church as such, and uh, some of the colonies did not have an established church, but they certainly had an established religion. It was the Christian religion or even the Protestants. Uh, sometimes there were laws that said only Protestants can serve in the legislature and so forth. Wow. So all okay. of them had okay. All of them had a very tight nexus with religious exercise, uh, and that also had to do with um, uh, the power of taxation. It had to do with uh, closing businesses on Sunday, uh, the Sabbath. Uh, they, they had, even in the non-established colonies, they had a very open um, relationship with faith. They were happy to have a relationship with faith. So we've, we've messed up history big time in this sure. phrase, separation between church and state. Uh, okay. there, never was, there never was an idea such as we understand it today uh, that there should not be a connection between faith and state. So it wasn't long after the United States came together that there was a lessening of excitement about having an established church. And one by one, on their own, through their own laws, state after state after state that had had established churches, disestablished them. Okay. Uh, of course, there were those who uh, opposed that, which gives us this great anti-disestablishmentarianism word that we throw <laughs> But so that's what that that's means. That's where it came from. That's, that's where it came from. So, wow. But even then, even when they got rid of the established churches in their states, they still maintained for years, in, in some cases all the way into the 1800s. Um, there were rules that said only Protestants can do this. You know, you have to, to be a member of the legislature, you have to be a Protestant. They didn't have an established church, but they had established Protestantism. And so no one until the 1950s almost, no one uh, thought anything at all about having 
uh, tax breaks for the church, uh, having uh, uh, laws for the closing of business on Sabbath, none of that, because there was always a relationship between faith and state. So we've got to be very careful about separating church and state and what that means. I could go into this for about two hours, because um, <laughs> I've written on it recently, but, but what's happened is that the Establishment Clause, because of a hermeneutic of interpretation that has been given to the Constitution, has been turned exactly on its head so as to make sure that no faith component can be brought into a governmental realm. Uh, so there is now, we've, we've moved from protecting faith to actually uh, using what should have been a shield as a sword against faith. Right. And in so many different ways, now, um, faith is on the end of uh, secular persecution by the government. So let me let me make sure I understand something you said um, regarding the the Congress versus the colonies. Uh, are you saying that it, whereas the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law, uh, that it doesn't say that Texas shall make no law? So the Texas right. state government has the right to make laws that weave faith in the state very explicitly. Correct. That was the original okay. intent of the Establishment Clause, but now. It's completely opposite. Mm. Okay, so let me ask a question. Uh, this this may get absurd very quickly, in which case I'll retract my question. But um, the that same amendment also guarantees uh, that the freedom of speech, freedom of press. Are you saying that? And freedom of religion, is, which we have completely forgot. Right. Are you saying that this is merely a protection from the federal? Uh, state and not from the state level? In other words, could the emerging states uh, mitigate speech even though the federal government is not permitted to by the Constitution? No, uh, that's a bridge too far. Uh, it's, it's apples and oranges because of separate gotcha. protections. Uh, okay. But what the state, current states could do if they wish to, they could, now this is, this is all theory, but they could decide, Alabama could decide, that the Baptist Church is the established church of Alabama. If that's what the, the voters wanted, the Constitution would permit that. Now, no state is asking for any of those things. Maybe one state, if given that option clearly, would do so. Maybe Utah. Maybe they would make Mormonism mm -hmm. the official mm -hmm. uh, church of, of Utah. Uh, but no other state would have any taste for that, nor would their voters vote for that. Sure. But, but under the Constitution, the state has every right in the world to do that. Okay, let me let me drill down a little bit, because this is fascinating to me. Scott and I had a guest on a few weeks ago from McMurray University, who is a constitutional expert, a political science professor who specializes in constitution, constitutional law and exercise. And what we realized immediately upon finishing is that we could have kept going for hours because it was so fascinating. And let me just clarify very quickly. A moment ago, Scott introduced me as a conservative, and I am, in fact, what I would call a classical liberal or a libertarian who is only conservative in some areas and far more liberal in others. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure oh, that gotcha. Lagarde yeah. understood it. Okay, okay <clears throat> And our listeners, in case they're new. So – I'm interested. Uh, I saw in a. I don't know how often you watch presidential candidate debates, Lagarde, but I'm guessing you watch all of them. I don't. Knowing, oh, don't you? Okay. A few years ago, when Ron Paul <laughs> was a candidate on the stage, he said many things that shocked the audience and his other fellow candidates, which I thought were fantastic. And one of them, uh, I believe, was addressing. A uh, prayer at football games or something like that, and and Ron Paul said, actually, the Constitution says that Congress shall make no law to interfere with that. So I have no problem with prayers at football games. And people were like, 
what? How can this? Because it's been so long accepted since 1950 or or so that you can't you can't combine school and prayer and in ways that were making people very nervous. So his argument was. Congress shall make wow, okay. no law. Yeah, interesting. And so I'm I'm interested in that point combined with the language of the Tenth Amendment that says all the laws we haven't mentioned go to the states and the people. But it seems like the relig- the law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting free exercise that that is a law that is mentioned. So it would not then go to the state and the people. Have I turned that around too much, Lagarde? Well, there has to be. You're talking to a law professor, ex-law professor here, so we got to we got to slice and dice this pretty carefully. <laughs> the law actually says Congress shall make no law regarding establishment of religion, and what they're meaning is an established church. It doesn't really go on to say Congress shall make no law with regard to religious expression. That is, Except- is protected by the. The other clause relative to the speech clause, the speech clause and freedom of religion within that. But doesn't it? I mean, I'm looking at the language here, and I want to I want to give due deference to what you're saying, which is the actual grammatical construction. Because I'm all I teach English, so I'm I'm all into that. Uh, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That was, I mean. That's the, that's the second part is prohibiting the ex, the expression thereof. Right. Yeah. Well, just we we talk about it as being two clauses. Yes. And the, the establishment, establishment clause has to do only exclusively solely with established churches, whereas the second clause would be saying Congress has no right to do that. I'm just I'm just saying we can't toss in the establishment clause for the. A substitute for the for the freedom of religion right. speech. Clause. I think you made that point well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Can I understand your point a little more about when it goes on to say abridging the freedom of speech or the press, etc.? Why why would that be abridged too far in the construction of this sentence? Uh, why would that not apply in the same way? Why couldn't the state of Texas say we're going to abridge your speech this way? Because the language you're reading there in front of you is not about Texas. It's about the United States, the federal government. It's not about the state government. Right. So then you get to the Tenth Amendment and all other rights back to the back to Texas, back to the states. So if our if your interpretation of um, the First Amendment is that we are not necessarily uh, forbidden from um, engaging in uh, activity of the state. It's just a question of whether we establish a state religion, or I guess in this case, a national religion. Um, I have a different question. And my different question is, are we any good at it? In other words, uh, let's talk a little bit about historically the, um, the effectiveness of uh, Christianity in terms of enforcing a law code uh, upon society. I guess this is what I'm asking, Lagarde, is can you give us ways to think about the um, the appropriateness of Christians engaging in um, establishing some reflection of our moral code onto the law code? Well, I think, first of all, we need to move away from the United States, from America, we need to look at government in general. And from time immemorial, government has established laws and rules that reflect universal morality. Every culture, whether it's Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, and every non-believing culture, such as uh, atheistic communism, there's still a universal recognition that it's wrong to kill without self-defense or in war or other kinds of things, that murder is wrong. And because of that, in every culture, you have rules and laws against murder. So we're not talking about the Christian faith as opposed to any other faith, or faith versus non-faith. We're talking about the rule of law in every country is virtually the same when it comes to don't steal, don't kill, don't 
rob, don't rape, don't maim. All of these fundamental kinds of things are just universally recognized, and therefore they are codified uh, to inculcate that rule to teach the people that it's wrong. They may not get it at any church. They may not get it through any particular religion, uh, religious instruction, but they, at the very minimum, they will get it through the written laws that are promulgated, that are enforced, that are announced, that are broadcast. Uh, we just executed so-and-so for murder. Uh, people mm-hmm. learn lessons from that. So it's law as a school teacher in a way to bring us, not to Christ, but to bring us to morality. Uh, and that's going to be true in every culture, every society. A, a, a pure libertarian perspective that says we're not going to have any rules, even a pure libertarian perspective is never going to retreat to say we don't need laws against murder, robbery, rape, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. That's not what libertarians are going to try to uh, encourage us to do. No one's going to. No one's going to encourage us to do that because they understand the value of law as it relates intimately, inextricably, with moral actions. Well, perhaps I should draw a distinction between anarchism and libertarianism for the purposes of that point, because libertarians would never claim to want no law, but I think anarchists would. But Pratt, well, is your point even even anarchists sh- would probably not do that? Yeah, yeah, even anarchists would, would not do that. Uh, it would even anarchists want to keep their stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, they will. They will. What What you're right about is that that is their theory, <laughs> but in practice, there ain't no yeah. way they're going to go there. <laughs> and so, they so break down everybody else's rules, but not their own. Am I um, Am I reading too much into what you've just described uh, when I say it sounds to me like you're you're making the claim that natural law is in some fundamental way equal to God's law. In other words, that they are, that we are as societies likely to come up with a system that is at least, even if it's a bad reflection, is a reflection of God's uh, fundamental law. Yes. I think that's pretty safe ground. Okay. Uh, the only caveat I give you is that the new natural law people drive me absolutely bonkers. Sure. Uh, the <laughs> I, I'm using the classical definition. Yeah. think they can reason their way through various things. Uh, they can uh, say that it's wrong to kill under any and all circumstances, and they exclude self-defense and other strange sure. things. So I, I would never go to bat. For the new natural law people, but the way you're using it as natural law, yes, that's the yeah. basic fundamental upon which all civil criminal law is founded. So did you hear, Cole, did you get where I'm coming? Is natural law equals God's law. So when we're focusing upon, uh, when we're thinking about bringing God's law onto the stage, we're just bringing the true revealed word of God into the context that already exists, which is that it, without his, without the word of God, we would still come to the same general sense. I mean, is this where you're, you're the Lewis guy. Is this where Lewis would go? C.S. Lewis? Um, yeah. I, we're arguing whether it is mere coincidence or whether it is the instantiation of the spark of God we all have in us. Yeah. Or go, I think go one step further. Go one step further to the law written on our hearts. Okay. Yeah, I, I think Lewis Lewis's point was the natural law that people who have never heard of God come to of themselves on a remote island is there because natural law is God breathed, right? Right. And I I I don't disagree with that. I think it is different from saying uh, we're going to make adultery a crime because Christianity believes it's wrong, right? I think. I think those are two way different things. Okay. And that's a good distinction because although virtually all law reflects natural law and God's man-made law 
or God's divine law, um, there is no requirement that every moral law be made a crime. So you never find Jesus who teaches about do not lust because that's a kind of form of adultery in any event. Um, sure. you, you never see him going the next step to say, and oh, by the way, we need to make acts of adultery uh, a crime subject to right. uh, stoning. I mean, that was part of the old law, but Jesus does not urge that that be the case. So if you were to think in terms of moral law as inclusive of things as diverse as murder, robbery, rape, and I'm going on a little continuum here, adultery, envy, mm-hmm. now I'm getting into something that would be difficult, more difficult to prove, but if you could prove it, should envy as a moral sin be outlawed as a crime? In theory, you could do that, in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, here's my point, that, that there's all sorts of moral compunction and moral guidelines and moral standards that the breach of which would not require codified sanction. Because if it did, we would all be in court all day long, <laughs> rightfully <laughs> sure. accused. So, so not even Jesus would have urged necessarily, I think, that adultery be codified into a law. And he may have even signaled that with the famous yeah. woman caught in adultery. Okay. Uh, that wasn't his point, but there may be some inference there that they were using the codified law against adultery in a wrong way is the point he was making. But and, and a, a point about forgiveness as well and a point about hypocrisy as well. You make several points there in that uh, instance. Uh, but I don't think he would necessarily uh, say to those of us who are his followers, you need to make sure that in your culture, your country, your laws, uh, you need to, to have a law against that. Okay, so I'm immediately jumping to an example that I find myself saying when I talk to uh, about this subject with other politically minded people, Lagarde. I have, and, and this, I'm really opening myself up here for a charge of, uh, Cole, you're too you're too nearsighted, but I have said to people many times who start accusing me of wanting to codify Christianity, as a libertarian, I do not want abortion to be outlawed because God doesn't like it. I want abortion to be outlawed because it's murder. And murder to me is not merely in the law because it is anti-Christian or anti-Yahweh or anti, uh, but because it is in fact a natural law of harm that any society would come to. So am I fooling myself? Lagarde, have you written any books about abortion? <laughs> uh, you, you know the stick about me. I have no unpublished thoughts. Uh, I, I have, I'm of two minds with regard to the abortion issue. Uh, the book that I wrote, When Choice Becomes God, uh, dealing with this, uh, I think it is right and proper for a state indeed for the federal government, uh, to uh, codify abortion as a crime and to punish it as such. Uh, We're not very consistent because if we call it murder, then uh, it would have to be on the same level in some respects with other kinds of murder, which we punish by either capital punishment or life imprisonment, and we're not about to do that uh, with women who have abortions, and if, if not, why not? if, in fact, it's murder. So uh, that's a very tough question to ask. Uh, even I, for I even for pro-life folks, I mean, this is this is a fundamental uh, component of, of pro-life platform, which is we don't want to punish the mother. Uh, we might want to punish the doctors, but we don't want to punish the mother. In fact, this is where Donald Trump messed up with Chris Matthews during the uh, elections because he... You know, he answered the question uh, somewhat consistently in terms of <laughs> the law here is because he said uh, or the principle of the law, because if abortion is murder, then I guess you'd have to punish the mother. And that was that was actually a, a problem that had to be fixed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, but so his logic, his logic is correct to that extent, because, I mean, if nothing else, you go through the back door of conspiracy I and mean, the woman's conspiring with the doctor and all co-conspirators are equally liable. So 
right, you know, right. From, from a conspiracy standpoint, that, that would work. But here's the thing on abortion. In my book, I make the statement that I would be happy if there were no laws against abortion, but because of, Scott, your word, persuasion, mm-hmm. we persuaded all women that it was just dead wrong, dead wrong, to have an abortion, uh, so that I wouldn't be upset if we had no law against abortion if I could believe that we weren't going to have any abortions. That's too idealistic to happen, uh, and I think that, that because we've gotten to the point where law is such a teaching tool for a secular society, that really we, we need to have that teaching tool because they're not going to get it anywhere else. By and large, they're not going to get it from um, churches anymore mm. because they're fleeing the churches. So I don't mind having it on there. Uh, it's just that, that when we have other kinds of laws which make us feel good because we prohibited it, but we're not going to enforce it, it breeds a disrespect for law in some respects. Uh, you just look at the traffic situation. If the, if the cops are, are not slowing anybody down who's driving 80 miles an hour, then everybody's going to drive 80 miles an hour. So it, it gets really complicated in that respect. But I think what you're really asking is, Abortion is a good illustration of when should something that is a moral issue be codified into law. I mean, that's, that's the question you're asking. And my answer is, there is not a clear black and white answer in every case. I think it has to be thought through very carefully. Uh, you, you take uh, prohibition. I don't have any problem from a constitutional standpoint or state by state government saying alcohol should be uh, illegal. Um, but as we found out, uh, there are some things that are incapable of being enforced. And if they are, then if we continue a law in the books that we have no way to enforce, it, it kind of breeds a disrespect for law. And we're finding that with the drug situation uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, a very, it's a very thorny, uncomfortable situation we're in where we have to kind of take it situation by situation and figure out, well, how best can society deal with some of these problems? Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Um, Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we've uh, we've heard the first half of, um, I call it an interview. It's more of a dialogue. I, I hope it was more of a dialogue with, uh, with Lagarde. Um, I want to start by noting something I appreciate about Lagarde. It's the same thing I appreciate about my friendship with you is that, um, uh, well, let me put it this way. I was surprised by my friendship with Lagarde. It was not something I thought would ever have happened because I only knew him from his books. I only knew him from when he spoke out loud in front of people. And um, I had allowed myself to, I think, caricaturize him to some degree. Um, or maybe allowed some of the voices that speak into my head to caricaturize him uh, during that period, especially in the 90s. Um, But what happened is that uh, we had a a mutual friend, a preacher in Scotland, who knew that um, I had a dream about an idea and Lagarde had the same dream about the same idea and we ought to get together and think about implementing that in Hawaii. And so one thing led to another and uh, Lagarde uh, came out and spent a couple of weeks uh, and stayed with us at, at our at our home for a couple of weeks. And I found the most silly-hearted, kind-hearted, generous, uh, easygoing person I never expected to have met. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I appreciate, uh, even, even as he represented himself in this interview, is that he is neither beguiling nor beguiled. You know, he is uh, the very definition of wise as a serpent. And also... Uh, uh, he has a heart for, for the gospel, and that's that's the first that's the first thing he thinks about, whenever he addresses anything. Um, so anyway, I appreciated him being here. I, I don't know that he changed my mind on very much, but he made me think about it more, and that's, that's what I want. Well, and true, uh, and I think if you you could probably recount stories of people that you got to know like you got to know him 
who at the end of things, if you found that you were disagreeing about a pretty important topic, you still shook hands and hugged and said, can't wait to see you again. That's um, right. Because when you know someone, then the disagreements become lesser. doesn't mean they go away. It doesn't mean they're not important. It's just it, they're harder, as you say, to caricature. Yeah. You got to if, – if you break bread at the end – uh, or hula pie. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners, if you haven't had hula pie. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if that's what you do at the end, then, then the breaking of the bread is the central function. It's like we say, we're bros before politicos and everything else is details. Everything else kind of falls into its appropriate place. Um, and I appreciate uh, – sisters and brothers who understand that. And I think it's a rare understanding. It's one of the reasons why it's important to me to do this podcast. Right. Because I think that is a rare understanding of um, family first. I mean, we're coming up on uh, the holiday season. Yeah. And there are a lot of families that will not get along because of what people around the table are thinking. And you have to belong to one another first. And in the family of God, we have to belong to one another first. We'll figure everything out. We yell at each other and call each other stupid. But we understand that the breaking of the bread is the thing. You might be calling each other stupid, but you're doing it while you're passing the gravy boat. <laughs> yeah. And that really helps things along. And yeah, and if my mom's at the table, you can't say stupid. <laughs> we, we had a list of rules, too. And I, I, I want to just add to that and say, in a, from a Rogerian perspective, mm. It makes a lot of sense to me if you're at a dinner table with relatives who believe differently from you politically, just to really make sure they know you understand their point of view, yeah. even as you're disagreeing. Why not listen? Right. Why not actively listen? Right. What's wrong with it? Right. Are you, yeah, are you, are you really going to lose that much by mm-hmm. um, either actively or just within your own heart trying to understand instead of being understood? Yeah, I want to talk about the discussion we were having with Lagarde about the First Amendment because I think we ran into cross- – You didn't just whip out your pocket constitution. I, I do have a pocket constitution. That is crazy. And it's combined with the Declaration of Independence, and they are they were sent to me uh, by Hillsdale College up in Michigan. You which, know you can get those on the internet. You sure can. And no, you I also, mean you can just get the constitution on the internet. I like to have mine with me, Scott Self. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't even know what this internet you speak of is. You don't have to give any is. money to Hillsdale's College if you want a constitution, <laughs> is all I'm saying. I, this was free. I'll have you know. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's just stop this and let me beat you up really quickly. Okay, so we were talking about the First Amendment, and uh, we came at some cross-understandings of the First Amendment, and then we moved on. But I want to return to it to make sure that we tease this out. The First Amendment is short, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. Okay. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That is all one sentence, and the pauses you heard were semicolons. I appreciated the way that you put those pauses in. I was reading it while you were talking from the internet, not from Hillsdale. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, uh, I appreciate that because I think those semicolons become very, very important to understanding uh, how to unpack those because we hear those referred to as clauses. Right. Right. Go ahead. And so Lagarde made the point that there that the very first – Part of that has two beats, if you will, an A and a B, and he called one the Establishment Clause. So Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That's beat one, and beat two of that part is, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Okay. When we were talking about that, it was in service to the way I feel about um I do not see the laws of the land of the United States or Texas or Abilene, where we live, I do not see those laws as being part of my faith system. I see them as two separate things. Well, I've made this point many times on this podcast. I do not want to take issues that I find morally wrong and try to codify them because they are part of my religious code only. 
and the easiest, let's just go to theft. I don't think theft should be against the law because God doesn't like it, or adultery, or envy, or pride. Those are all things God does not want you and me to do, and so we strive not to do that because we're Christians. I don't think they should be codified in the law. There are some things that overlap with my with my beliefs of state state laws, such as theft, I think a person should not be able to take another person's property by force. And that is not because God doesn't like it, but it's because of my belief uh, first in uh, no harm, non-aggression, and, and so forth. So Lagarde's response to that <clears throat> was that he felt our laws all come from God at some level, the, that humans um, – I hope I'm saying this right – that humans form the laws by which they – the moral codes and the laws that they eventually codify parts of from their sense of God. And I, I think that might be a separate argument, but as we talked about the First Amendment, um, he and I disagreed about whether it's okay for a Christian to try to codify something that is morally wrong to one's faith. Right. And the other part of that was, you know, it says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say Alabama shall make no law, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So the, the question is, can Alabama decide that there is an establishment of a state religion? Yeah. And that, that was an important part of our conversation. He said, if the state of Alabama decided to say the state church of Alabama is Baptists, they would be, according to Lagarde, in their rights to do so because it says Congress shall make no law. Right, but then the question is, can the can the state of Texas then um, remove the freedom of speech for Dallas Morning News? Correct. Right. And he said that that That's was a, a bridge, bridge too, too far. far. And I don't understand how he could have made that leap to say one thing is not a bridge too far about a state religion. But the other is a bridge too far about removing freedom of speech at the state level because of the way this is written. I don't either insofar as um, these are all um, uh, clauses that come after one governing phrase, which is Congress shall make no law. Mm -hmm. Now, I get the specificity of narrowly construed – I'm using y'all's language. language, Narrowly construed that says Congress shall not. So Congress is the subject – and uh, make no law is the predicate, mm-hmm. right? So this does not necessarily mean that the, st- the individual states or local principalities cannot make uh, those laws. I think there is something. Um, I think I would want to, to point out that I don't know of anybody who believes that these are absolutes. I mean, let's take freedom of speech for a second. That's usually the one we believe is most, most absolute uh, because most people, regarding regardless of whether they are uh, adherents to a religion or not, desire free speech, right? So that seems right. like an important one in right. our time, uh, and that that is somewhat universal across. You have ACLU defending uh, uh, neo Nazis' right to speech. That's an odd combination, <laughs> but the reason for that combination is we see the the a consistent need for uh, free speech, and so this is the one that's most oftentimes re, uh, understood in universal terms. But that gets tested all the time. It gets tested in instances where, uh, for example, a newspaper gets a hold of um, uh, top secret information, right, right, and publishes that in their newspaper, do they have free speech or do we want to regulate the press at some level, right? Does that mean that they get to share stolen information? And uh, I mean, there's always the the yelling fire in a crowded theater, but there are actual challenges to the ways in which we experience free speech <clears throat> or in the right of assembly or to, to, to argue redress against the government. In that case, we still feel okay about, I, I guess we feel okay about requiring permits to do that, right? You can't just assemble on public property and and carry signs if you're not properly permitted to do so. Right. You have to go to the city hall and fill out paperwork saying on this day, we're going to gather and and rail against City Hall. <laughs> and maybe maybe we shouldn't. I think there's an argument that none of these should be uh, qualified in any form fa- or fashion. But we do qualify them in some form or fashion. We do see limits. 
So I, um, I, I think it's possible to look at any one of these clauses and say, oh, this is absolute, but the other one is not absolute, right? Yeah, which is hard. Yeah. It's hard because the fact that it says, the, Logart's point was, it says Congress shall make no law. It didn't say Congress and the states and the municipalities. None of those bodies are permitted to make a law against free speech. It does not say that. It says Congress shall not. But free speech is held sacrosanct in this nation for reasons, I guess, that are beyond the scope of the Constitution. I want to come back to Dr. Fabrizio's suggestion, though, that we we have to understand the the Constitution as being tested during the Civil War. Okay. And so it might be that, that was the, a great point, it wasn't was, it? Yeah. Gosh. And I think maybe Fabrizio might answer us, and he's not in the room, so I'm going to have to channel my inner Fabrizio. But I think he would challenge us by asking, did the 14th Amendment then help us understand more fully the First Amendment? That, in fact, the states can't just go do whatever they want to your rights as expressed by Congress. By the, by the Constitution. Shall I read the relevant sentence in the 14th yeah, Amendment yeah, that you're that. talking about? I'm, I'm going to pass over the naturalized citizen part, okay? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. I think you could. I think you could turn around and look back at the. Now that's that's a hundred years later. But I think you could go back and look at the First Amendment through that lens and understand that 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 the Fourteenth Amendment does indicate that it is not permissible for the states to turn around and create. But this actually fulfills. This is actually part of Lagarde's argument, which was in its infancy they may not have had a problem. Right. Yeah. The Constitutional Congress may not have had a problem with Alabama having a state religion. But we on the other side of the Civil War hmm. want to make sure that rights are permitted to the individual. All of the, the federal rights and liberties are extended to all citizens, regardless of what state they exist in. Mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's possible to understand Lagarde's argument within the time. I'm not sure I agree with that argument as, you know, that we had the right and the the founders believed we had the right to influence the law at the state level, just not at the federal level or the congressional level. We've waned away from there. Well, we waned away from there because of some of the other challenges that that come up in the Constitution and the ways in which um, states and states rights, the states right to limit individual liberties. Uh, had to get worked out through the Civil War. Yeah, main, mainly through the Civil War and through some other things, too. I've heard a lot of people talk about how the Founding Fathers saw the states as little individual labs where they would encourage, hey, Virginia, if you want to try this at the state level and it's different from Rhode Island and it's different from Delaware, they're all trying different ways of uh, communing that all correspond to the federal guidelines, but they're all different, then the United States can watch and see which ones work from a utilitarian standpoint and which ones don't, and they can emulate the ones that work. That was kind of the, the when they set out. You know, their, uh, just last night I learned this. I did not know this before, but uh, Massachusetts almost did not ratify the Constitution, <laughs> and it was over the question of pardons, presidential pardons. Really? <laughs> yeah, because if the president can pardon anybody, he could pardon someone um, by for nefarious reasons, mm-hmm. right? For self-serving reasons. I don't understand how that could ever happen to you. <laughs> yeah, so if he can pardon someone for selfish reasons, um, then maybe we shouldn't have pardons. And that's when Hamilton responded, sir, that's why we have impeachment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that, so that what what's actually coming out is not so much that, you know, uh, these are the rules, but this is how this document engages in the discursive process of figuring out what we want to do. Um, and so uh, I think that makes a lot of sense that, uh, you know, that that maybe they did believe that states would figure out, would ha- we would have to figure this out. And we would have to, maybe they didn't know we would pay such a terrible price to figure right. that out. Right, right. Um, but I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the, the perspective because I think maybe 
maybe Lagarde was on to something by sa- by saying um, that the states might be able to even establish um, expectations of, of religion. I, okay. That's not a grammar, now, uh, here's the um, here's the other thing I I think is part of my question. Did the founders really believe that the states could abridge free speech? And he said that's a bridge too far. Which, how can that be a bridge too far if they can make a re- establish a religion in his mind? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't quite get how he was parsing those. I don't know. I can, I can um, unless there is, I'm not, uh, I've not read enough to know whether that may be something that was actually discussed. But still, you know, maybe, there, maybe that was part of the conversation. You know, the founding documents are on the internet. <laughs> And available from Hillsdale College. But Hillsdale hasn't sent them to me yet. <laughs> okay, so um, so let's go to natural law. Okay. I I kind of put this out in the best my best understanding of the argument for natural law, and the um, the way I kind of proposed this was: Is natural law in some way a reflection, even if it's a poor reflection of? of God's law as um, revealed in, for example, in uh, to Israel, or God's law is revealed through Christ, that natural law makes the argument that we kind of have that written on our hearts. By the way, there are some interpretations of Romans 1 that ratify this, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. Paul is making an argument that they are without excuse for uh, for Moses is known in all uh, in all lands, and there is a law written on their hearts. And this is, I guess, I don't I don't know Lewis nearly as well as you do, but this is the Lewis argument, right? That um, the, the humans are predisposed to understand behavioral codes as a as a matter of being human and being God breathed. You might think about it in terms of something like DNA that we all have yeah, DNA markers. Yeah. You know, of of some a predecessor, that the law itself is a DNA marker of God, and we have that in our hearts. We all know instinctively that it's wrong to murder. We all know instinctively that it's wrong to commit adultery. We all know, know instinctively that it's um, wrong to steal, and so we end up having a um, an understanding of what that what those rules are, and that they are somewhat universal. Well, that they are universal. That we always that if that if we violate them, we are violating something that when in our hearts we know is is wrong, even without a code to tell us so. Right. Mm-hmm. That you shouldn't need a code to tell you that it's wrong to steal. If you choose to steal anyway, you're just um, you're violating the natural law. So, what do you think about that? Um, I get where that comes from in a classical sense. This is. Um, in large part, for for Christians in the West, this is informed a great deal by Thomas Aquinas, who's interpreting, I think reinterpreting uh, Aristotle to some degree. Uh, but I understand the argument is, look, uh, everybody knows you shouldn't murder, right? Everybody knows that you shouldn't steal. Um, and so, and and so, Paul is vindicated in Romans one when he says that. First of all, I think Paul is making an argument, a larger argument, and Romans one is in service to a bigger argument, not making, not explaining the world as it <laughs> right. as it should be. Paul's not philosophizing on humanity. He's going to say that Christians in Rome need to start getting along. They have no excuse, and if they are going to act like pagans. Even pagans know better. That's what he's going to do. And so he's he's doing something in Romans that's not about the pagans. Okay. But anyway, um, uh, but you know, I think a plenary understanding of Scripture would say, but there's truth there, right? And so maybe he's maybe he's re- revealing truth, even if the the point is a broader one. I'm just not sure. I believe in natural law. I I have a. I have a strongly Hobbesian view, and I've already expressed that before, but I just don't know. Think about George Costanza for a second, and I know you love Seinfeld (laughs) even more than I do, but George Costanza is oftentimes a liar, and that's fine, and it's something that he should be able to do, but he's never happy about it when somebody lies to him, right? (laughs) He wants to double park in front of somebody whenever he wants to, but if somebody double parks in front of him, we're trying to have a society here. Right. 
And I think what you have in George Costanza is the perfect amalgamation of humanity itself, that we want as much liberty as we can possibly have. I want to be able to steal from you in in whatever ways are possible, but I definitely don't want you stealing from me, right? I want to be able to, to do harm to others, but I don't want harm done unto me. And so we begin to do, to socially work out some definition of what we would be willing to have happen and what we wouldn't be willing to have happen. I don't want someone to kill me and eat my flesh. So let's make cannibalism, you know, illegal. Wouldn't that be good? Because um, it feels icky that somebody might eat my flesh. But there are other cultures where that doesn't seem to be a problem. <laughs> Historically, it <laughs> yes. doesn't seem to be right. a problem. Um, that, uh, you know, I... I, I don't want um, I don't want my uh, spouse to run around with somebody else. So let's make you know uh, adultery illegal, or let's have uh, a contract in which we all agree that whomever we're uh, hooked up with is the person. Nobody else gets to hook up with them. I'm telling you, I think this is what we do as human beings. It is not in any way. I don't think it's in any way reflective of God's. Um, goodness or of God's love or agape? You think it's based on our own utilitarian sense of what we getting what we want? I think law is always utilitarian. Okay. I think law is always a negotiated um, tension between liberty and regulation. So you would disagree with C.S. Lewis and you would disagree with the others that we've mentioned, Aristotle? Well, no, I actually agree with Aristotle. Okay, I, I disagree with uh, Aquinas' interpretation of Aristotle. Okay. Aristotle makes the argument that there are – okay, maybe I do agree with disagree with Aristotle here. He does believe that there are things that all people do, that there is nature, and that there are natural rights, and he distinguishes between the two of those. And one of the criticisms of Aquinas is he's not understanding the difference between natural law and natural rights. Are there such things as natural rights? Those would kind of fall under the ca- the category of liberties, life, liberty, and property. That's what, and and in fact, that's what it comes. Yeah, out. and in fact, the 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 writers of the Declaration of Independence, well, Jefferson and others, they seem to give a signal to this idea of natural law. Right. Hmm. These are imbued by our Creator. Yeah. Endowed. Thank you. Endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable. That's a fascinating word yeah. to me to be used right there. Inalienable rights, life, liberty, and property, and or the pursuit of happiness, depending on which draft you look at. Um, and so you take issue with that. You think it's – so what is the consequence of believing that there are no quote-unquote natural laws, but only um, humans trying to get society to be arranged in ways that Help, well, in, in help part, people live. In part, you start to see where my, and for better or for worse, and it may be for worse, <laughs> my dualism is exposed. That I think we, as members of the way, as people who care about God's revealed will, about God's revealed will, actually um, are focused on fulfilling God's intention. God's true intention. When Christ says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, I'm not saying that we're going to murder more. I'm saying you're going to be better than the Pharisees. You're going to be better than what uh, what these social agreements end up being. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you, I, I really get frustrated with the idea that we're going to, for example, um, you know, when I hear the argument that we need to abolish same-sex marriage because it's against God's will. The law has nothing to do with God's will. We, we can talk about what we want to do in our communities, an understanding relationship, and we should talk about that, and we should have very rigorous and difficult conversations with each other. But having said that, um, the law is a reflection of social agreement, not of God's will. And it's, it's absurd. It's absurd to me to think about trying to codify some really bastardized version of God's will into something that turns into rules and regulation. I hear his argument, and we'll get into this in our reflection next time. I do hear his argument, well, um, the reason for regulation is because societies are secularized. And I think that's, I think he's, I think when he's saying that, he's playing into my utilitarian argument. Okay. 
but I was really glad he came. Oh, me too. Me too. Hey, um, uh, so next time uh, we're gonna we're going to listen to the second part of that interview, and then uh, and I want to 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 let our listeners know we did not do the interview with splitting into two parts in mind. So this is something that we did in the editing process afterwards. And so when we start the next episode, it will sound a little bit funny because we just pop right back <laughs> into the conversation. So uh, keep that in mind as we start next uh, next time. But we'll see you then. Cheers. Cheers.